You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's April 16th. Demographic trends in fertility, mortality, and migration are responsible for shifts in the structure of any population. The pandemic is affecting all these areas, disrupting the very makeup of American society. On the RAND blog this week, two of our researchers, Esther Friedman and Andrew Parker, wrote about the early COVID-19-related demographic trends they're seeing. First, data suggests that the U.S. fertility rate, which has already been declining for quite a while, could decrease even further. Lower birth rates translate into fewer people entering the labor force 20 years later, which affects the economy. And with fewer new parents in the future, that cycle may continue. Second, COVID-19 could exacerbate a pre-pandemic uptick in mortality. What's more, the distribution of COVID-19 deaths has not been uniform across race and ethnicity, and that's important. Disproportionate death rates could change the very face of the population, placing greater burden on specific communities and groups. Third, COVID-19 has already affected migration. Many migrants returned to their home countries at the start of the pandemic to avoid border closures. This has continued even now, as many migrants lose their jobs and face higher risks of infection due to overcrowded living conditions. As a result, the U.S. is likely losing migrants who are vital to certain industries. It's difficult to know how this combination of trends is going to play out, but more time and more data will provide a clearer picture of whether these disruptions are short-lived or whether they change the demography of the nation and the world for the foreseeable future. In the COVID-19 era, many of us, especially those of us who are working from home, may only see a few people each day. But a significant number of people have hundreds of contacts daily. They are retail workers, prison guards and incarcerated people, waiters, meat packers, factory workers, or people who live in multi-generational households, dorms, or nursing homes. So what about these high-contact people? What's the increased risk of someone with, say, 200 contacts a day transmitting the disease? A recent RAND study used modeling to understand this question, and the results showed just how important it is for Americans who have many daily contacts to get vaccinated. First, it's important to know that the probability that someone gets and passes on the virus is proportional not to their number of contacts, but to the square of their number of contacts. That means that someone with 200 contacts per day is 40,000 times more likely to spread the disease than a person with only one contact per day. Evidence has shown that vaccination drastically prevents transmission of the virus, so vaccinating that high-contact person is 40,000 times more effective in stopping the spread of COVID-19. In fact, Rand's modeling work showed that vaccinating just 15% of the U.S. population would be enough to crush the epidemic. But it would have to be the right 15%, people who have the most contacts. How do you reach these people? Well, they're easy to find, but they also tend to be the most constrained in terms of time and money. They're mostly hardworking people who can't afford to take time off to find an appointment 
and then show up for it in the middle of a weekday. To help, health officials could work directly with places where people have high numbers of contacts, such as churches, factories, and schools. The Iran Threat Network is a formidable force of tens of thousands of fighters across the Middle East and South Asia. These fighters are affiliated with a number of diverse and disparate groups that receive some level of support from Tehran, such as the Houthis, the Kurds, and Lebanese Hezbollah. A new RAND report takes a close look at the Iran Threat Network to determine how it factors into Tehran's political and military strategy. The authors conclude that the network is Iran's primary means of power projection and preferred instrument of influence in the Middle East, and it's likely to remain that way in the future. Additionally, the groups that make up the network, not Tehran, are most likely to launch attacks against U.S. and other targets. Further expansion of the Iran threat network would increase Iran's ability to undermine stability in the region, antagonize U.S. allies and partners, undercut U.S. influence, and pose a risk to U.S. military personnel. To prevent this, the authors recommend that Washington formulate specific responses to the groups that make up the network. By relying heavily on information gathered by expensive classified satellites and its intelligence collection programs, the U.S. intelligence community has, quote, blinded itself to a trove of public information available online. That's according to Rand's Courtney Weinbaum. The need to monitor such open-source information is urgent, she says. And there are plenty of recent high-profile examples to show why. Take Russia's strategic misinformation campaign to influence U.S. elections. Moscow conducted this operation on social media in view of everyone— that is, everyone except the intelligence officers who only look at classified sources. Despite the signals that were available, U.S. elected officials described not being adequately warned. The deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol earlier this year is another example. Members of the mob that stormed the Capitol organized, planned, and announced their intentions in public view, online and over social media. Weinbaum says that the Biden administration and Congress could finally take action to address this problem. Plans have already been created for the types of unclassified intelligence sources that agencies could be ingesting, the programs they could create, and the technologies, like algorithms and automation, that could be used to support these efforts. Enacting this shift could help the government uncover foreign adversaries' plans to harm the United States, identify sources of domestic radicalization, and save lives. North Korea's nuclear weapons are an existential threat to South Korea and a potentially serious threat to the United States. Even only a few of these weapons could cause millions of fatalities and serious casualties if detonated on South Korean or U.S. cities. Thus far, the primary strategy to address this threat has been to negotiate with North Korea to try to achieve denuclearization. This strategy hasn't been successful, and according to the authors of a new RAND paper, it will likely continue to fail. Instead, Washington and Seoul could focus on convincing Pyongyang that any nuclear weapon use would be disastrous for the Kim regime. This could be achieved by developing substantial counter-nuclear weapon capabilities, and also making more active threats against North Korea. 
South Korea and the U.S. may also need to carry out an active information operations campaign so that Kim understands the jeopardy associated with nuclear weapons and that investing in those weapons is a waste of money. If North Korea believes its weapons are a liability rather than an asset, then it may consider some degree of denuclearization. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week.